0: Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and today I am going to read part two of the essay I started last time by the American biographer Catherine Antony. Uh, This is a biographical article that appeared in 1930 about the life of Alexandra Kollontai, the world's one woman ambassador, is the title. So the interesting thing about this piece is that it was written primarily for an American audience who may not have known very much about Alexandra Kollontai. And Catherine Anthony is trying here really to establish Kollontai's authority not only as a diplomat, but also as an intellectual, as a political figure, and very importantly, as a woman. And I think it's really interesting, the tone of the article is quite quite positive, uh, even though, as I think I mentioned last time, a few of the facts are a little off. In general, Antony does a very good job of giving the reader who may know nothing about Russian revolutionary politics or Russian history, a sense of Kalentai's importance in the revolution. So I'm gonna go ahead and continue reading part two. Indefatigable student, she has that genius for detail, which goes with the highest order of intellect. She has done heroic things in research. Her first literary and scientific achievement was a study of the, and this is the title of the book, life and work of the Finnish proletariat. It was the fruit of her Zurich training and her childhood days in Finland. Her next work was the social basis of the woman question, which appeared in 1908 when all the world was vibrating to the shock of the English militants aroused much popular interest. Even the Russian women were stirred enough to make this book of Kolontai's a popular success. Her monumental work, however, came later when she published Motherhood and Society, the Russian edition of which fills 600 pages. Alexandra Kolontai had been delegated as an expert by her colleagues in the Duma, That passing attempt at a Russian parliament to make a study of maternity protection laws as so far as they existed. Her survey covered all of Europe and Australia and concluded with practical recommendations which were wasted upon the Dumas but were snapped up by Norway. Even in countries like our own, and here Anthony is talking about the United States, which is far from following her recommendations, The study became known as a handbook on the subject. Social workers who were interested in infant and maternity welfare learned at least to know the name of Alexandra Kollontai. Her book was an enduring contribution with an international mission. No other author and no other country have produced its equivalent. It remains a classic in the field, a unique contribution, for which some internationally minded group should strike off a medal. There is an aspect of Alexandra Kollontai's life to which only an expert in mystery stories could do justice. We in America need to remember that she was brought up under a regime in which ideas were contraband and thinking was treason. In order to live at all, For a personality like Kollontai's, thinking is as necessary as breathing, she was obliged to learn the art of underground travel. She began in the illegal societies for popular enlightenment, progressed to the outlawed socialist party, and next attained the status of a political traitor. A fiery pamphlet on the Finnish question procured her the last. I was obliged to vanish in all haste, she says, and never saw my home again. Nevertheless, she attended a Women's Congress in St. Petersburg the following December, or at least a part of it. I was obliged to flee before the end, she notes. Her life henceforth shows the wandering trail of exile. She traveled from land to land. She has probably been active in more countries than any political character of our time. In 1911, she was in a Paris strike and gave a course of lectures in Bologna in 1912. She was in the Borinage in Belgium and with the youth movement in Sweden in opposing militarism. In 1913, she was in England, breasting an anti-Semitic outbreak. The war overtook her in Berlin, but she soon left Germany for the neutral ground of Sweden. In 1915, she spent five months in America, covering the country from coast to coast in a lecture tour. She knows more about the United States than any other communist standard-bearer, with the possible exception of Trotsky. And through all her varied life of exile, she never adopted as did many of her male colleagues, a fictitious cognomen, she has always remained kolontai. After 16 years of political activity, much of it as an agitator, after being once shipwrecked almost into the hands of the enemy, it remained for her to be first arrested for anti-war propaganda. This happened in her trusted Sweden. Long years' experience had given her a feeling of immunity. I had felt so safe, she says, that I had taken charge of Shlapnikov's papers. Under the eyes of the police, I succeeded in sticking them under my blouse and causing them to disappear. She was sent to a Swedish prison and from there to a Danish jail. By some turn of fortune, she arrived in Oslo, a free woman, and before the local police had time to pounce upon her, she had solved her problem. In a little wooden hostelry, like a camp in the Adirondacks, on the top of the Holmenkollen, she took up her residence. Beneath her lay Oslo, and the glittering sound spread out in full view, but the sphere of the Oslo police did not reach up to her. The mountaintop belongs to the next rural district, and the police there ignored her. They let me stay, says Kollontai gratefully. They just did not bother. Small wonder that she loves Norway and feels at home there at present. The city which once banished Ibsen has redeemed itself by welcoming this companion of his spirit. An ambassador she has met with great success. Step by step, she has furthered the commercial and political relations between Soviet Russia and Norway until at last they have become normal. When the trade agreement of 1926 was finally ratified by both governments, the conscientious envoy felt she should go elsewhere and start at the bottom again. The logical place was Mexico and thither as ambassador she was accordingly sent. But the long sea voyage exhausted and handicapped her, and the unaccustomed climate failed to restore her. The United States refused her entrance, and the unfriendly conditions on all sides caused her to pine. It became necessary for her health's sake to leave Mexico, and, circumstances favoring it, she returned to Norway. There, in the midst of an amiable and democratic people, she has become herself again. Literature has always attracted her. Like all great personalities, she can dream as well as act. At the height of her career, she turned from economic and revolutionary subjects to write on the subject of modern love. Her stories contain glimpses of the old St. Petersburg on the Neva, combined with the stark realism of new Russia. Her themes are emotional. Perhaps few Americans would enjoy them unreservedly, for they have the true Russian quality, a bold reaching back into the primitive from which we Americans shrink. In her fiction, Alexandra Kolontai returns to her own country. One meets in her stories an entirely different woman from the one we have come to know in public life, Alexandra Mikhailovna, a child of her race. An essay on the same subject as her novels brought maledictions down upon her head. Many Bolsheviks are Puritans and in the bad sense of the term. Alexandra Kollontai's attempt to state the sex question for youth was a stroke for realism which should have been more appreciated. Like her efforts on behalf of mothers and children in the early days of the revolution, her championship of youth was misunderstood. In a world which had suddenly turned upside down, the rising generation was striving desperately to orient itself, a pathetic human struggle which only rare souls like Kolontai were even aware of. Women had played the part of men throughout three years of horror, had been sappers, soldiers, police, generals, and had grown used to it. Afterwards, in the newborn society, they had had to work like men, shoulder to shoulder with them. In the cities, crowding, one room for three persons, etc., had become usage. Among the young people, both students and workers, had sprung up a kind of free relationship, a so-called new morality. Youth was only as usual carrying on tradition, but it was a new tradition created in storm and stress. While some of it was due to abnormal conditions, some of it was wholesome, and Kollontai was only trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. But her attempt to thresh the problem met with violence and opprobrium. All right, I'm just going to have a quick aside there, because obviously Catherine Antony here is talking about Alexandra Collenty's essay Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth, which we've discussed quite a lot on this podcast in the past. I do think it's interesting that Anthony here is clearly, you know, discussing this essay on sex and sexual morality and basically kind of free love, which in 1930 in the United States would have been pretty shocking. But I think it's important that Anthony here is also saying that even in free Soviet Russia, quote unquote, free Soviet Russia, that it was even more shocking in the sense that these Bolsheviks are Puritans in the bad sense, like they're actually as conservative as American society, if not even perhaps worse. And so Kalentai's attempt to discuss the sex question to kind of help young people navigate this new world of sexual freedom uh, was met with violence and opprobrium. All right, now uh, back to the essay. She was in danger several times of being mobbed. The famous legend about the nationalization of women, which was bruited about in this country, was bruited about just as noisily in Russia, with the sole difference that here the communist government and there Alexandra Kollontai was made the scapegoat. Okay, another quick aside. The nationalization of women was this accusation that was printed in British and American newspapers that basically the government was going to somehow distribute women to men um, so that they could basically have like a collectivity of women that men would have access to. It was obviously a base lie. But there were so many different rumors about what the Bolsheviks were doing that seemed so preposterous at the time, abolishing divorce and abolishing the difference between legitimate and illegitimate children and allowing for you know free love and creating civil marriage that people were inclined to believe the most crazy things about what the Bolsheviks were actually doing. And Anthony points out that in the United States, this this nationalization of women was blamed on the communists, whereas in Russia, the blame uh, for this rumor was put on the shoulders of Kalentai because she, in fact, was the commissar of social welfare who was spearheading some of these reforms. All right, uh, back to this uh, essay. About this time, a private sorrow interfered with her public life, the one and only instance in her history of such a thing happening. And that's the divorce with Debenko, I believe. Nevertheless, it led to her retirement as commissioner of public welfare and gave courage to those enemies who love to kick the fallen. Frequently, she says... I was obliged to spring out of the tramway before the people recognized me, for I had become a veritable topic of the day and was often forced to listen to the most unbelievable insults and calumnies against me. Persecution added to unhappiness, the last straw and the splendid fighter of so many battles became dejected and ill. But soon the battered citadel reared itself again. With colors flying and pennants streaming, Kollontai resumed her place in the vanguard of her country. Packing her trunks with books, selecting her secretaries, and clinching a cooperative consul. she set forth cheerfully for Norway, once more a pioneer. The job which she has done there bears testimony to her youthfully expanding powers and is a precedent as well for envoys in general. She has turned a position which is often a mere mark of honor into a stiff employment. And so the large-eyed little maiden, who once played with the peasant children on her grandfather's estate, no doubt ruling them rather grandly, though she resented even then the fact that their food and clothes were different from hers, the avid pupil of Marie Strachkova, the immature young wife and mother slamming the door of her doll's house for the life of a student, the ardent disciple of Marx and Lenin, the wanderer, the exile, who at last entered the promised land only to be cast forth again, the committee woman of Smolny and the foreign organizer of business and trade relations, the philosopher who looks back and says that the gain was worth the cost. And lastly, the emerging artist taking her sensitive first steps. All these personalities and still more are united in Alexandra Kollontai, Russia's ambassador to Norway. She wrote recently in a memoir, In the earliest years, I knew that to follow the true bent of my life, I must outgrow myself. She has done this gloriously, not once, but several times. Okay, so that was Catherine Antony's biographical essay, Alexandra Kollontai, the World's One Woman Ambassador, written in 1930 and published in the North American review. Thank you uh, for listening, for sticking with me for the second part of this essay, which I think is a really nice little piece, obviously introducing Colin Tai to an American audience in 1930, right after the stock market crash, before the Great Depression. But she is quite a force of nature, as Anthony points out. And I imagine that a lot of American readers were very curious about this woman, Colin Tye, of many, many talents. And I often wonder, you know, how many women might have had careers like Colin Tye, had the gender politics of our country not been so regressive at the time. Anyway, I am gonna sign off now, but once again, I'm gonna ask humbly if you are a fan of the podcast, if you're a supporter of the podcast, If you would consider pre-ordering my new book, uh, Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life? It is a book about sort of what I call family expansionism. It's very much in the tradition of Kalintai. I will leave a couple of links in the show notes if you're interested. I would be very grateful for your support. Thanks again for listening and keep up the good fight.